Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Fellowship Podcast. We hope this message will inspire, challenge, and encourage you to grow closer to Christ. If you're in the Anchorage area, we invite you to be our guest during our morning Sunday worship service at 11 a.m. For directions, or if you would like more information about us, please visit akmaranatha.com. Hey, good evening, everyone. Uh, what is, anybody know what this Sunday is? Easter Sunday. All right. I hope if you um, think of it and you know somebody that's not a believer that doesn't, obviously they don't go to church, or maybe they do, uh, invite them to church on Easter Sunday. Man, what a great time to, uh, to talk about and proclaim the victory of God. Uh, tonight we're going to continue in a series, and this is actually the final one. I thought we would talk about the cross uh, up into Easter, and we've called this uh, series Dimensions of the Cross. And um, tonight we want to talk about the cross as God's example. And uh, so uh, previous weeks, uh, ver- uh, the first week, the cross as God's wisdom, that it's the wisdom of God that no one would have figured out. Nobody would have guessed that this was the way that he would conquer the world. Uh, he hinted at it. He gave scriptures regarding it, but it seemed that nobody was able to put that together. But uh, Christ conquered through the cross. And then the second week, we talked about the cross as God's suffering, that he suffered on our behalf. He took our punishment and he took our sin. And so we talked about his suffering. And then uh, the third week was the cross as God's justice, that he doesn't let sin go unpunished, but he deals with it, and he dealt with it on the cross and through the cross. And then the fourth week, that would have been two weeks ago, the cross as God's love. Okay, he demonstrated his love to us in the cross. Aren't you thankful we're not just riding on emotions, but we have some some solid reasons that are objectively in history that God loves us, and he demonstrated it through the cross. Last week, we talked about the cross as God's victory, and this week, we want to talk about the cross as God's example for us. There are uh, verses in the New Testament which tell us that the cross is the paradigm of living the Christian life, and if you want to get a little bit of a head start on this, uh, you look at some uh, uh, the main verse we're going to look at first is going to be in Romans chapter 6. So if you'd like to turn there, that would be good. But I'm going to refer to some other verses regarding this first, that the the cross is the paradigm for living the Christian life. There's a whole segment uh, of the church out there that denies this. They they think that living the Christian life never means sacrifice. It never means hardship. It never means difficulty. And uh, what I see uh, coming from the New Testament is the opposite of that. It, It welcomes us into a life with Christ in which, yes, there is there is joy, there is peace, there is righteousness, but it also comes at a cost. And so all of the other sounds good because we don't want to have trouble. And it sounds right by a kind of sense-making that, uh, you know, it starts with God is good and he only wants good for his children, and he does only want good for his children. But then what I think it does is it takes the fatherhood of God and it kind of forces on it our modern understanding of what a father is. You know, if you look at what a father looks like in biblical times, it looks a lot different than what a father may normally look like in terms of what our culture wants. They want to downplay some of the uh, some of the difficulty. Um, they want to downplay the discipline, and sort of everybody needs to be supportive, and all of that. 
And of course, no father wants to see their children come to adversity, but good fathers recognize when adversity helps to build character. Otherwise, we become, uh, can I say it? Can I say snowflake Christians who melt with the slightest heat? And you'll find places in Scripture where God let his people go through times of difficulty so they would be strong. And uh, one of those is in the book of Judges, where uh, on one hand it talks about how some of the, actually Joshua, it talks about the Canaanites remaining in the land because some people didn't do their job and push them out. But then it also talks about how God allowed them to stay in the land so that his people would learn to fight war. They would know how to war and, and do battle. And so there are times when adversity comes because God wants to build character. And so to uh, see the Christian life as, as God is always causing us to escape from every kind of difficulty, kind of like a helicopter parent uh, that never wants any trouble whatsoever to come into their life, uh, it causes Christians to be soft. And I think what God wants is he wants to show his love, but the way that he does that is he gives us opportunity to build character. And does he rescue us from some difficulty? He does. He does do that. Uh, but he also at times encourages us that I'm going to walk. Th- I'm going to walk through this with you, and we're going to see uh, good come from it. And so the cross then becomes a paradigm for living the Christian life. A paradigm is kind of an organizing principle, a uh, way of looking at the Christian life is that uh, this present life is crucified with him and raised with him. And the outcome ought to be that we're different as a result of it. So let me point out some scriptures before we come to the the one I just mentioned. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So he's saying, I've been crucified with Christ. He's understanding that there, that in union with Christ, that he died a certain kind of death, that he is being raised to a new kind of life. Second Corinthians 5.17, the ESV says it this way, if anyone is in Christ, uh, he is a new creation. Uh, you know, of course, that means he or she is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So it's saying that if we're in Christ, we're part of a new creation. We've died to the old self, and we're alive to a new way of life. And it's it's even more than that. It's even more than us just being made new. It's saying that we are part of the new creation now come. At this moment, the new creation has already begun to take root, even now, because of what Christ has done. And then Galatians chapter 6, verse 14 through 15 Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. So Paul sees himself as having died to the old way of looking at things. So was he a Jew? Yes, in one sense. But in regards to his approach to God, he had died to that. Okay, uh, was he a Gentile? Of course not. But in regard to his relationship with God, he would have been dead to that too. Was he a sinner in union with Christ? He understood himself to have been crucified with Christ, so he no longer lived to his old sinful life. Was he perfect in law keeping? Well, remember what Philippians three says in regards to legalistic righteousness: flawless, 
But he said, all these things I consider loss compared to knowing Christ. So he considered that loss too because of Christ's perfection counting towards him. He can never outdo Christ in terms of righteousness. So what he does is he welcomes Christ's righteousness and he abandons his own. That doesn't mean that he doesn't live a righteous lifestyle. What that means in terms of his standing with God, he's relying upon Christ's perfect righteousness rather than his own imperfect righteousness. Are you with me on that? I hope so. So uh, as uh, all of life was lived through this reality that the old had gone and the new had come, all the old human categories, all the old human obligations, all the sin debts, the identity had now been changed because of Christ. And so, and that runs really, really deep in Scripture. And this is the way we, um, we let Christ live through us is by dying to ourselves. And so as we see the cross as the example of how to live, uh, we have to consider ourselves as dead concerning our old lives uh, of sin and alive to God. All right? So let me mention three categories tonight in which... Uh, this plays out. And the first one is, I'm just going to call this uh, the battle against flesh. Okay, And you could put sin there. Uh, but do you realize that there are things the flesh wants that are not necessarily sinful in and of themselves, but they run contrary to God's purpose? Can you Can you relate to that? Like, uh, it's not necessarily sinful to make this decision versus that decision, but it's not going along with God's uh, purpose. Okay, so that's the first one. Sorry, that's kind of messy. All right, and here's some verses related to that if you'd like to write them down. Romans chapter 6 through 8, which we'll look at. Uh, chapter 13, verse 14, and I think we'll refer to that. Hebrews 12, 4. I'll repeat these in just a moment uh, if you're interested. 1 Corinthians nine twenty seven. Colossians 3, 5, and 1 Peter 2, 20 through 25. Let me repeat those. Romans 6 through 8. That's all of those chapters, 6 through 8. Romans chapter 13, verse 14. Okay, Hebrews 12, 4. 1 Corinthians 9, 27. Okay, Colossians 3, 5, and 1 Peter 2, 20 through 25. All right, let's take a look at Romans 6. Would you do that with me? And we'll look at verses 1 through 11. So we have a battle against flesh, and that also that includes the, the natural human desires that sometimes look out for self rather than looking to God. And it also includes the sinful desires that we have. What shall we say then, verse 1, shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We uh, are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or, do you, uh, or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with and that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also Live with him, for we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, 
but the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves as dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Okay, so notice here in verse 2, the first thing that this says, it says in spiritual, it's talking about in spiritual union with Christ, we've died to sin. Verse 2 says it this way, we are those who have died to sin how can we live in it any longer? So that's the first thing that he's saying is that there's a kind of uh, death that comes as a result of a spiritual union with Christ. Okay, When you uh, enter into Christ, the Bible is big on this, that we as believers are in Christ. And by doing that, we adopt by a kind of corporate solidarity all that's true of him. He died. Okay? And because he died in our spiritual union with him, he died for our sins. And our sins have died to us. We've now died to the present order of things in one sense. So you understand you still have to live at the same address and pay your taxes and all that. But in, in one sense, it's as if all of that old life is gone and a new life has come in Jesus. How many have experienced that? And it's been exciting for you. That the old is gone, the new has come. You're not the same person you were before because of what Jesus has done. And so in spiritual union with Christ, we've died to sin. Verse 6 says, in spiritual union with Christ, uh, we've been crucified with him. Now, uh, here this is talking about a reality in times past, but he's going to come in just a few moments to the practicality of this. So notice uh, in verse 6, and I'll read it for us here. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Paul is going to make the argument that when the slave dies, they no longer have to respond to the old master. That's his argument in the book of Romans, that when you die, you no longer are accountable to your old master. And then he makes the case that the old master is sin. Okay, We no longer have to bow to sin. We're free from that. That's the point that he's trying to make. Verse 11 shows us, look at verse 11 with me here. In the same way, Count yourselves as dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ. Because of our union with Christ, we are to reckon ourselves, that's the KJV word, as dead to sin. Uh, the um, United Bible Society Bible Handbook, they do, a, they do a handbook for translators. And when it comes to this verse, it's trying to tell people who are translating on the mission field how that they can translate this to communicate it in places where they don't have the same figures of speech that we have. And so they, they suggest this, dead as far as the power of sin to control your lives is concerned. You're dead in that way. And then it mentions this, uh, this word account, okay, count or reckon. Okay, and this word is a, a, uh, an accounting term. And in the Bible, it's telling us that how we're to think about this particular matter. How should we think about ourselves in relation to sin? Do we continue in that lifestyle? I think what the Bible is trying to tell us here is that in terms of our uh, union with that old life, we're dead to it. Okay, So that's the theological standing. But the practical standing comes in chapter 8, verse 13. And you can see it all through chapter 8. But look at verse 13, if you'll just flip over to chapter 8 real quick, and verse 13. Okay, now Paul is setting out uh, the, the difference between living by the flesh, which was the old way of living, and living by the Spirit. Okay, If you have one chapter of the Bible that I would recommend reading every day, Romans 8 would be it. 
because, man, it's rich. It's rich, and it's full of practical wisdom for living for Christ. Uh, Look at verse 13 with me. If you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. If by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body. To put to death here is one word in Greek, and it means to cause total cessation of an activity. Um, Or to cease completely from an activity with implication of extreme measures taken to guarantee such uh, cessation. You you know what I mean by that? Cessation just means to stop. You're going to stop doing this, and even if it takes extreme measures, you're going to stop. That's what it means to to put to death. Anybody know what the KJV has there? I like it. It has mortify. Mortify. Okay? Put to death. Kill off. Murder those sinful tendencies in your life. That's what God wants us to do. Uh, if you're troubled by the fact that we use murder, I think that's the sense of the, the gravity of this word, to kill it off. And the verb uh, here of putting to death uh, these sinful tendencies is present and active. Okay, It's present and active. And present uh, tense verb means that it's an ongoing thing, that we have to continue to put to death the misdeeds of the body. We don't like... Uh, graduate from one year of being a Christian and all of a sudden we no longer have to do that. No, this is a continual call as long as we live in this body. Okay? I don't. I hope that doesn't discourage you. I hope you find this like an exciting, exhilarating thing. That doesn't mean that God's not giving you the victory. It means that he's given us the victory as we cooperate with him to be holy. Are you with me? So, put to death the misdeeds of the body. It's it's an active verb, which means that it takes action on our part. We have to kill the sin, but we do it with the help of the Spirit. If by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you'll live. So while it's a verb that's calling on us to act, it's not calling on us alone. Are you with me on that? We're not alone in this, like, oh, i got to pull myself up by my bootstraps and I got to really get disciplined. I really got to be strong and all of this. That may be true, but you're not alone in it. And you've got the best helper to accomplish this, the Holy Spirit, whose first name is Holy, right? Or if you're in the Old Testament, Spirit of Holiness. It's just the way the figure of speech works. The Spirit of Holiness. His Holiness is his characteristic. So he's doing that work in us, but we cooperate with him, and, it, and we have to at times take extreme measures to do that. We ought, to, we ought to always be extreme in dealing with sin. I mean, what did Jesus mean when he's talking about plucking out your eye and cutting off your hand? Now, I don't think he was intending everybody to do that literally, but I think he was saying, look, here's how extreme I see this. It would be better that that happen than that you miss out on the kingdom of God, right? So uh, there's an important word here that I think is ought to be mentioned. We have misdeeds. Um, what other translation do we have on that? What are we putting to death in other translation? Anybody have the ESV? Okay. KJV? The deeds? Okay. okay. Anybody else have anything different? Okay. Misdeeds of the body. This is uh, the word that goes with that. And you might recognize this if we were to transliterate it from Greek. Uh, 
It sounds a lot like praxis. Okay, this is the, the practical things. And, and it means actions, put to death the actions. And I think right here, many people have fallen under the spell of thinking that is common in our world, that we are inclined or we are uh, compelled or we are destined to follow our desires, that we have to do it. In fact, it's, it's preached now that you ought to follow your heart, you ought to follow your desires, whatever your desires are. If you really want to be fulfilled, you need to follow that. And what this has done for us is it's divided action from desire. Do you understand what we're to put to death? We're to put to death the misdeeds. And I think the reason it's important to draw that distinction is because in all of the New Testament, um, we it tells us we don't have to follow our desires. This is really a battle of lords, is what it is. Who's your lord? Is it our desires or is it God? Okay, so when we face temptation, that's the struggle every time. What's going to rule in our in our lives? Is it going to be this or is it going to be this? So the uh, desire may still be there. In fact, I, I show you a verse on that. That's Romans thirteen fourteen. It says, rather clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. Okay, here's what that's saying in practical terms. The desire may be there, but don't, but don't think about how you're going to feed it. Follow the Lord Jesus Christ. You may still have the desire, but it says, uh, don't seek provision for those things. Um, I think if I remember KJV, it says something like, make no provision for the flesh. Is that right? Okay, so there, the idea is, don't feed it. Whatever the sin is, don't feed it. We participate in the sin, we feed it. Okay, and so he's saying here that the desire or the temptation may continue, but we're not obliged to follow it anymore. And this suggests that sinful desires may still be there, but we're not to feed them or make provision for them. And some Christians don't overcome sin for these reasons because they don't know that they have freedom in Christ. They feel that they still have to follow those desires like it just I wanted to so bad I couldn't say no well I think if we're honest to scripture we could say no nobody wants to say that because that puts the responsibility on us but I think there's truth to that and then uh, some people don't overcome sin because they don't know how that freedom from sin is not the same thing as freedom from temptation they think that well I still have the desire of sin so the so sin may still be in me being tempted by sin doesn't mean that you have an evil heart. Jesus was tempted by sin. Amen? I know probably this isn't super exciting. Yes? Sierra? Well, that's why I wanted to make a distinction between sometimes the flesh just want, is looking out for itself. It's not necessarily that it's looking for sin. Uh, and sometimes where there's temptation. I think the enemy knows kind of what the, the, the flesh craves, um, and, and probably a good way to answer that would be to say that most sinful desires are good desires turned and twisted towards evil. Okay? Um, trying to think of an example of that. Okay, there's temptation in regards to sex. Okay? Is sex bad or good? Nobody wants to say it too loud. It feels weird to talk about it, doesn't it? 
it's created by God, right? Okay. But what the enemy wants to do is take a desire that's good and say, use it this way. And that's evil. Okay. So there are things that are fleshly desires. And in fact, in the book of James, it talks about this a little bit. It says that, um, that uh, we're baited with our own desires and that when we give in to that, we're caught away, we're caught in a trap. So I don't know if that helps. Or is that muddy the waters? Anybody else have anything that maybe could clarify that? Yeah. The desire for food isn't bad, but when it gets abused, it becomes a, a gluttony. And you can think of um, other things related to that. Are we okay to go on? Okay. All right. And then some uh, continue in sin. We've been talking about how some don't overcome because they don't know that there's freedom from sin, and that's not the same thing as temptation. And some don't overcome because they don't want to. They just don't want to. They like it too much. Galatians 5.24 says, Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. That means we we put to death the flesh. Maybe there's a sense in which those desires still remain, but we put them to death. And we don't follow that. And, of course, you know, Galatians 5 is about the, the works of the flesh versus the fruit of the Spirit. So the crucifixion uh, takes sin's punishment. It breaks sin's power. It removes sin's claim. And so we're to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God. And I think this is uh, God's call to us in some way. It's not just a psychological trick, but it's understanding what our true nature is because of what Christ has done for us. All right? Let's take a look at the next one here. And I'm going to say that uh, the cross is a paradigm for sacrificial love. It shows us what sacrificial love is. If you turn to uh, Philippians 2, we'll look there and also uh, John 15. The love that Jesus... uh, Exampled for us in going to the cross is the way that we ought to love each other, and it's sacrificial kind of love. In John 15, verse 12 through 13, he says, My commandment is this. Anybody know what it is? What is it? I heard it. That you love one another. What else? As, as I have loved you. How did Jesus love us? He died for us. And he goes on to say this in the very next verse, in verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. So notice, uh, it goes from, I have loved you in, in this particular way, and now I'm commanding you to love. And then it describes what his love is like. So Jesus' sacrifice on the cross is the way that we ought to humble ourselves to have the same kind of love. So look uh, with me at chapter 2 of Philippians here. Paul is writing to a church that it seems maybe they're joyful in a lot of ways, but uh, you get this hint as you go through Philippians that there's some discord. Okay, So I beseech you, Odia, I beseech you, Syntyche, be of the same mind. He's urging these ladies to get along. That They've been true uh, helpers in the cause of the gospel, but there's some kind of discord that's running through the church. And so in chapter 2 and chapter 3, he sets some examples. The first and most important example is Jesus 
And then he talks about Timothy and Epaphroditus and himself as examples of a kind of selfless love. Uh, Here in 2, he says, Therefore, if you have any encouragement, this verse 1, from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, fellowship, koinonia in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, if you have any of the rewards, he's saying, of being a Christian, all the benefits of being a Christian, are you with me? Okay, then he says, make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love. The same love as what? That Jesus showed and gave. Okay, make my joy complete by having the same love, being one in spirit and one in mind. Then in verse 5 through 8, in your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus had, who being in very nature God didn't consider equality with God, something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. He emptied himself by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So I'd like you just to think about this with me. And uh, one of the things that causes breakup in relationships is usually when we think we're more important than other people. Would you agree with that? Okay. I've got to have my way, uh, even if it means you don't get your way. So Jesus uh, showed us a different way. Paul explains a different way. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Jesus. Who was higher than Jesus? Uh, the answer is nobody, right? That he's, he's equal with the Father. In terms of his divinity, and he's subordinate to the Father in terms of his humanity. But in terms of his divinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are co-equals with each other. Okay, so there's no one superior to Jesus. This is Paul's point. Nobody is superior to Jesus, and yet he humbled himself. He emptied himself. He made himself nothing. He poured himself out for the sake of others. He didn't cling to his own importance for his own advantage sake, rather he, he made himself nothing and he took the nature of a servant. Of course, Jesus didn't come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And then when the disciples were arguing on the night that Jesus would die, do you remember that? They're all arguing about what? Who Who's the greatest? Who's the greatest? And Peter thinks he's the greatest and the others think they're greater. And Jesus says... If anyone would be great among you, they must become servant of all. He takes off his outer cloak, and he puts on the robe of a servant, and he goes and he washes their feet. And if you really want to get the impact of that, do you remember John the Baptist said, there's one who comes after me that is greater than me. I'm not worthy to bend down and loose his sandals. Okay, so if you have servants in the ancient world, you've got people who maybe serve the food and watch out for people as they come through the door, their butlers or whatever. And then at the bottom rung of servanthood is the person that deals with feet. And you know, feet can be nasty, right? That's the person at the very bottom. And so John the Baptist says, in comparison with Jesus, you may think I'm great, but I'm not worthy to unloose. I'm, I'm, I'm less than low a servant. Now Jesus bends down and begins to deal with feet. And he shows us the nature of true servanthood and true love. And then he becomes obedient even further by dying death on a cross. 
So the cross becomes a picture of his servanthood taken to the lowest degree. Okay? And if you know some of the background of this, you know that the cross was a slave's death. Okay? So he's taken the lowest degree. <laughs> and one of the beautiful things about this is, is that by Jesus descending so low, he brought slavery up with him. And I don't mean that he elevated the institution. I'm saying those who were slaves and considered nothing found new value because of what Christ had done. So this is um, the paradigm for love. The cross is the paradigm for love. So acknowledging our own death with Christ, it really helps us to fight, um, to give up the fight of our own significance. Uh, This is the remedy for pride. We can ask ourselves, who are we fighting for? Are we fighting for a dead person? Ourselves, right? What rights do dead people claim for themselves? None, right? Okay? If we've died with Christ and we're considering ourselves as dead with him, then there's nothing that's below us in terms of serving God. We don't have to fight for our own significance anymore. For one thing... Dead people don't fight for their significance. And the other thing is the reality that Christ has already lavished upon us significance by dying for us. Like If you wonder if you're significant, don't look around. Don't look at what the world says. Don't look at your bank account. Don't look at your job. Don't look at how many friends you have. Ask the question, has Jesus loved me? Because in the last evaluation of things, that's the only one that will matter. And if he loves you, you're significant. It doesn't matter what anybody else says about us. We're significant because of what he's done. And so we can quit fighting and jockeying for position and trying to be the, uh, you know, the alpha dog and be the biggest kid on the block. We don't have to do that anymore. We can give up those kinds of fights and really go to work serving and loving one another. If to live is Christ... If it's Christ living in us, does it matter that we're, whether we're important to anyone else? See, once pride goes, then offense goes too. Because if you're not proud about yourself, you won't easily get offended. And uh, I wish I could tell you I've perfected that. It's hard to be offended when we're not fighting for our own self-importance. I think there's something here which is more than what I'm communicating. And it's more than caring what anybody thinks. This is a kind of rest from our strivings to look good in one way or another. Wouldn't it be great to lay that down and just be authentically God's person in this world? See, the crucifixion demonstrates the kind of love which sacrifices self for the sake of others. If you listen and watch what the world's saying, you'll increasingly hear that people say, we have to look out for ourselves. I have to look out for myself first. I have to do what's best for me. You know, we're 40 years removed from the me decade. Anybody know what the me decade was? The 1970s is known as the me decade. Everything started to become about me. And the United States, at least began to move away from considering the group important. And now it was, I don't care as much about the group. And now more and more I care about myself. And now 40 years, think about what that has produced. A whole generation of people 
in our culture growing up thinking me first. And it's been devastating. That's the direction the world's going. I think if we'll listen, we'll hear that. I wonder if we're better off with people looking out for themselves first. Of course, the reason Jesus needed to say this was because it's not always natural to us, and people in his day looked out for themselves too. So this requires a kind of crucifixion. Not always on a grand scale either. Like if we're thinking, you know, have you ever had that thought about what would happen if you had to if you had to step in and give your life for somebody else? Anybody else had that thought? Oh, nobody's willing to admit it. You're the hero of that story, like in your fantasy, like if this happened, then I would be the hero and I would step in and take a bullet or whatever it might be. Um and, and that would be kind of on a grand scale, but, you know, the crucifixions that we're called to live out are little tiny deaths to self. Maybe God would call us to make a big choice like that, but often this comes in little deaths where we put others ahead of ourselves and love them and prefer them even when it's costly to us. See, that's where it's, most of this is lived out. It's a lot easier to die for Jesus once than to live a life of death where we perpetually die to ourselves day in and day out. That can be hard. But I remember one missionary, uh, I think he was a missionary to Iran. I think his name was Pike. And uh, he, was t- he went back to the mission field and he'd gotten dragged out of his home and beat up by some thugs because of his preaching of the gospel. And so he goes back to the state on the states on furlough, and uh, he was preparing to go back. And when he went was getting ready to go back, somebody said to him, "Aren't you afraid you're going to die?" And he said, "I died 40 years ago when I gave my life to Jesus." And he realized anything they do to me from this point on is just me living out the commitment I've already made. And I think that's really what it is: is that these little deaths that we die are really only a the outworking of the big commitment of saying to Jesus when we come to him, take all that I am for all that you are, and I die to me so that you can live. Let's talk finally here about the victory and hardship. The victory and hardship. You could uh, probably write down some cross-references here. Romans chapter 8, we'll probably look at a verse related to that. Hebrews 12, which we will look at. But I'd like to start in Luke nine twenty three. says, Jesus uh, said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self, their soul? So the primary concern with this passage, I think, is suffering for Christ, but it could be more. And so let's take a look at a few notes on this verse. First of all, I'd like you to notice the Christian life is discipleship. The Christian life is discipleship. There's, there's some that want to draw a line and say, you're, you're a Christian, and then if you're a really good Christian, then you're a disciple. No, that's not true. Discipleship is for everyone. A disciple is not a special kind of Christian. It's what God wants from every Christian. In fact, all true Christians are disciples, and all true disciples are Christians. All right, are we settled on that? I hope so. Okay, so then 
we, we see that here. If anyone wants to be my disciple, if anybody wants to follow after me, they have to deny themselves. And so the Christian life is not only discipleship, where we're following and learning from our master, but it also involves self-denial. Let me go back to discipleship because something just occurred to me here. Discipleship means following the master in his way. Are you with me on that? It's following the Jesus way. Okay. Jesus has a way about him. How did he live? We talked about it a few moments ago in terms of his death on the cross. He lived as a servant, didn't he? Okay. He died for the sake of others. He, he gave up his life for others. He, he emptied himself. He poured himself out. However you'd want to translate kenosis there, he poured himself out. And he emptied himself of his own self-importance. He didn't cling to his prerogatives as, as God. He, he left self-importance behind in order to serve. Okay? And so I want to suggest to you that this is the Jesus way. Discipleship means following the Jesus way and being willing to lay down our lives for others. Maybe not on the, like I said, maybe it's not going to ever come on the, like the, the end of a tale of two cities where one guy goes to the guillotine in place of another. Uh, maybe it's more in terms of little deaths that are lived out, maybe towards your spouse or uh, towards your kids or a coworker, or the people that you are reaching out to in this world, that you're serving them. Christian life then involves self-denial, as, as we said. Notice uh, there, if anyone wants to be my disciple, they have to take up their cross, they have to deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. This is a, a form of saying no to ourselves. I don't like that. Do you? Does your flesh like that? No, we don't like that. But the Spirit gives us power to say no to ourselves. There's power to do that. And in fact, it's the call. Self-denial is the call. And it's not just necessarily a denial of ourselves in terms of sin. Sometimes it's denial of our own good for the good of others. Well, the third thing here is that it involves taking up a daily cross. Luke is the only one that that uses the word daily. All the other Gospels, maybe um, Mark and Matthew, I don't know if John um, records this verse for us, but they say, take up the cross and follow me. Luke says, take up your cross daily. And so he's drawing on an emphasis that, that strikes him here, that this is a daily uh, the daily sacrifice, if you will. God calls us to a daily sacrifice, not just um, we made the decision once 40 years ago, but this is a, a daily commitment to die to self. And what is the cross after all? It's an instrument of death, isn't it? And he says, take it up and carry it with you. Take up the instrument of death and carry it with you because it's going to happen. Christian life involves abandonment. Okay? Abandonment sometimes means to us running away from all of our responsibilities, but that's really not what he's talking about here. Look at what it says. Uh, it says in verse 24, whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. If you really want to catch the uh, emphasis of this verse, then uh, the word save means keep. 
Okay, It can mean keep, and that's what it, I think it means here. If you want to keep your life for yourself, you lose it. But if you give up your life for Jesus, then you, you'll find it. You'll, you'll get to keep it in the long run. Do you understand what, how that works? That by abandoning self to Jesus, that we actually are secure in life with Jesus. But when you take that into your own hands and live for yourself, our lives are not very secure. All that we'll live for, if we live for ourselves, is going to burn away. So he's called us to a kind of abandonment where we say, I give you my life in exchange for your life. And that, that's the final thing here. In, in verse 24, the Christian life means giving up our lives for him. It's not just abandonment, but it's abandonment for Jesus. Okay, This is the the pearl of great price. This is the field with the treasure. You go and sell all that you have and you find, you found the riches and you go and you gain that thing. Okay. The pearl of great price. It's exchanged for everything else in exchange for this. And it's a bargain. If you give up your life for Jesus, you're the better for it. Come on. Isn't it true that when we give up our lives to God, he gives our lives back to us to steward them for him. But he still gets to call the shots. But we still get to have our families. We still get to enjoy living. Uh, There's a lot of things that go with this that are still like ours on loan to us. But the title deed belongs to Jesus. Do you believe that? Think of the scripture. You're not your own. You've been bought with a price. We don't belong to ourselves anymore. We belong to Jesus when uh, that transaction has been made. So this is uh, the great exchange that takes place. I, um, this doesn't mean, by the way, that living as a Christian is macabre or dreary. But it does mean that it comes at a cost. Leslie Newbigin, a missionary to India, he said, it's the very heart of the gospel that it both gives everything and requires everything. It both gives everything and it requires everything. 2 Corinthians 1.5 uh, says it like this, that if we share in his suffering, the sufferings of Christ, so also uh, our comfort abounds through Christ. And I don't think I quoted all of it, but if we share in his sufferings, we'll also share in his glory was the verse I was after. Other verses related to this kind of thing in terms of suffering with Jesus is uh, Philippians 3, 10 and 11. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and the participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection of the dead. Paul is not fuzzy that, um, that the saved life or that heaven comes through Christ. Okay, That's not what he's saying here. He's saying how all of that is going to transpire that, that's a mystery, but he has no doubt where his confidence lies. It's coming through Christ. So when he says, so somehow to attain to the resurrection of the dead, he doesn't understand all of the mystery that's involved in being translated from this life to the next life. But he knows where that life comes from in Jesus. Okay, uh, Romans eight seventeen. Now, if we're children, then we're heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. There's that verse. 1 Peter 2, 20 through 21. How is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. 
to this you were called to do the right, right? And even if you suffer for it. Because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you also should follow in his steps. So here, once again, the point is that we can have victory and hardship if we live the crucified life. First Peter chapter 4, verse 1, Since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. So it seems to me that enduring hardship is part of taking up the cross and following Jesus. Okay, there, there's a, uh, there, of course, is the normal human experience. And it seems to me to meet, to meet us on all levels, Jesus had to experience what it was like to be human, except without sin. And this, of course, doesn't mean that every experience was exactly like our experience. You know, I'm, Jesus, uh, from what we know of Scripture, wasn't married, didn't have children, and we could understand why, but uh, he knew the difficulties of rejection. He knew pain. He knew misunderstanding. He knew loss. He knew fear, and he knew death. He ultimately went to the cross, and the cross uh, typifies or gives us a symbol of suffering for how we live the Christian life, that we, we understand that we're crucified with him, and so we endure suffering as part of that crucifixion. It's our taking up our cross and following him. So what uh, I hoped we would see tonight is the New Testament paradigm for the Christian life of self-denial, dying, refusing, and loving from a selfless point of view. And, and this isn't all bad. I, I'd like you to think for a moment of where all of our indulgence in our culture has gotten us. Do you think we're any happier? I think you could probably make a good case that some nations around the world where uh, it's harder to live, that if you go there and visit, you find they have more joy. We have at our fingertips a smorgasbord of options. We can, we can choose along many paths of life and choose what our profession is going to be and, you know, you know how that goes, what kind of TV we're going to buy and all that goes with living in uh, a culture like ours. And they, it ought to be a blessing, but I, f- I find that I don't know that it, all that makes us any happier. And so as, as I'm offering here what I think Scripture teaches about the Christian life, there's joy in it. There's joy in following Jesus despite the fact that he's called us to take up our cross. In fact, um, the paradigm of the Christian life means all that. Self-denial, dying, refusing, and loving from a selfless point of view. But this isn't all bad. It's through these means that we truly live and find holiness and inherit uh, blessings and fellowship and find joy. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 through 3. Listen to this. This is a, after talking about the hall of faith in chapter 11. It's, uh, it's describing all who've gone before us. And do you remember how that closes? Like the first part, it's like these guys did these great things. And then it comes to the end and it's like, and also some through faith, they wandered about and lived in caves and holes in the ground. Some were sawn in two, like through faith. Wow. Then it uh, says of them the world was not worthy. But then it turns to chapter 12, and there's no chapter break when the writer to Hebrews writes this. So it's not like everybody says, okay, we got done with chapter 11, Bible study over. Let's, uh, 
let's uh, forget about what's next. No, uh, when they would hear this letter, it would go right from chapter 11 into chapter 12, where it says, since we have this great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let's throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance, the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, the author and finisher. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He scorned, despised. This is what this word means in Greek. The shame. It's no big deal compared with what he's going to be gained. He despised the the shame and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you'll not grow weary and lose heart. This is our Bible. It's challenging us not to be soft in our following of Jesus, but to take up our cross if necessary and when necessary. And we, it's necessary that we do it. When it's going to be needed, when it's going to manifest, we don't always know. But we better be ready. We better have the attitude that we're taking up our cross to follow Jesus. If we wait to that moment and start to pray a quick prayer, Lord, help me to be strong. It's too late. Let's be prepared that it can cost us to follow Jesus. And if uh, all indicators are pointing a certain direction, it's that it may require of Christians to be more formidable in their faith than we've been in the past. We have gotten soft. And I'm not saying you. I'm saying as a church on a whole, as a whole, the church in the United States, we, we probably have gotten too soft. But I don't want us to be soft. Do you want to be soft? You know what I mean by that? Like when the heat comes, our snowflake melts. I don't want to be like that. So God help us. For the most part, we have it easy enough, but the best comes from laying down our lives for Christ. And at the end of the day, we'll, we'll be fulfilled for having done so. And he's worthy of it. Amen. Thanks for hearing tonight. Let's stand and... Let's uh, close with some prayer. Jesus, we're grateful for all you've done for us. We're thankful that you died on the cross and by doing so set an example of how we can live. Help us to be to be dead to ourselves in terms of sin, to be dead to sin and alive to you, that we no longer render service to that old master because we've died and we are risen to a new life to serve you and to walk with you. I pray you help us in that. God, help us to die to ourselves in terms of love. I pray, Jesus, that you would give us a selfless attitude towards others, uh, where you've said there that we're not to consider others, we're to consider others better than ourselves, and we're we're to take up the benefits of our Christian life and to to respond to it as selfless Christians following the Jesus way. And Lord, I pray that in terms of the difficulty that comes from being Christians, that you would help us to be strong and to realize this is part of living the crucified life. Give us the strength to take up our cross daily and to live not what we want, but what you want from us, we pray in your name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for uh, being here tonight. Thank you for joining us today. If this ministry has impacted you, we would love to hear about it. You're welcome to message us at akmaranatha.com forward slash contact or message us on Facebook at Maranatha Full Gospel Fellowship. We pray you are blessed by the message and have a wonderful week.